And we have some Bibles for anyone who needs one. Larry and Len and Jean have some. We're going to be looking at James chapter 2. James chapter 2. But if you don't have a Bible, please get their attention so that you can look at James chapter 2 with us. They'll get a Bible to you. James 2 in just a moment. And welcome everyone. As we continue our series through the book of James for the next three Sundays, today and two more, and then, and then we're finished. So we're obviously not going to get through all five chapters, but you'll get the gist of what James is communicating to those to whom he originally wrote, and by extension to us, in the uh, next three weeks, and uh, coupled with the three weeks we've already had. And then what's the schedule going forward? Let me just uh, make sure everybody knows what we're doing over the next few weeks. Today and the next two Sundays, we will finish the book of James in here. And the young married class and the home builders class will finish their seven weeks together as well. On September the 6th, then, you will all be in here together. The young married, the home builders classes will be over, and they'll all be back in here. And for the first three weeks in September in here, you'll be taught by some of our other guys, not me. And the reason is, is because I will have a class in another section of the building for those three weeks called our Newcomers Orientation. And if you've never taken our Newcomers Orientation, then I highly recommend that for you. That's why we schedule it uh, periodically throughout the year for three weeks. If you're new to our church and you would like to know what we're about, where we came from, what we believe, what we hope to accomplish in the future, that's what that class is about. I have a booklet of material that I go through uh, for you, and it is strictly for informational purposes. It doesn't obligate you to anything. If you decide this church is not for you and you never show up again, that's, that's fine. If you decide to continue coming but you decide I don't want to join or I want to take a long time uh, before I decide if I'm going to become a member of the church, that's fine too. You don't have to do anything other than come get the information to assist you in making a decision about where the Lord would have you to serve. So that will be on September 6, 13, and 20 during this 11 o'clock hour. And if you would like to participate in that, let me know today or over the next couple of weeks because I prepare those notebooks. I'd like to just have a rough idea about how many people are going to be participating in that. All right? So that will be the first three weeks of September. Newcomers class. The rest of you will be in here. And then on September the 27th, I'm going to teach just one lesson, a single lesson, on uh, what the Bible has to teach about uh, safety issues, believe it or not, and guarding our children and guarding ourselves against potential, potential harm that occurs even in churches. Why am I doing that? Because many of you know that we have a security plan in place. And when you meet in a school building, uh, it's essential that you have a security plan in place. It's really important in any building, but particularly in a building as cavernous as this one, where our children's classes are way on the other end of the building. So we have to know that all is okay with them, that we don't have anybody snooping around down there that's unauthorized, any of that. So unbeknownst to most of you, uh, we have people patrolling the halls uh, every Sunday. And those people are carrying walkie-talkies. Well, we want to make sure everybody knows what that's about. And so we'll take one week to do that, and at the end of that week, weather permitting on September 27th, we will actually have a, an emergency drill. At the end of our time, we'll actually exit the building, and we'll tell you where to go and where your kids will be if anything were to happen and all that, okay? 
So it's sad that you have to take some time to do that kind of thing, but we think it's prudent, and I hope that you see that it's a prudent measure as well. And particularly those of you that have children or grandchildren, I hope you appreciate the care with which we're trying to uh, protect them. So that will be September 27th, one week. And then on October the 4th, October 4th, we will start a new series in here called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And that will go for uh, 10 weeks. And I'll be leading that, and we'll all be in here together. So that's our next outreach series. We'll send mailers to the community. We'll give you invitations to pass out to your friends for our October 4th Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. That's what's coming up in September and uh, the end of October and then beginning or end of August and then beginning in October, we'll start with that series. Okay, everybody clear? Let's look at James chapter 2 today then. We've been looking at the book of James. And what James tells us about the need for those who claim to believe in Jesus Christ, the need for those who make that claim to demonstrate the authenticity, the genuineness, the reality of that profession by how we live. That's the burden of the five chapters of the book of James. James, like the rest of the biblical writers, is not content to have someone simply say, I believe. But rather, if we say we believe, then we need to live in a way that's consistent with what we claim we believe. Most of you have heard me say that the word believe in your New Testament is the same word for faith. So if you say, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ, that's the same as saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, then that raises questions of what do you believe about Jesus Christ? I believe who the Bible says he is, that he is God, having come as man. I believe what the Bible says he did and accomplished on our behalf. So when we say, I have faith, it means I believe. I believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Now, that is a profile for most of you here. I know most of you, and I know you make that profession, as do I. I believe Jesus is God, having come to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I've come to him, having expressed, confessed my belief, my faith, that he is that and that he accomplished that. And it's to make a profound difference, then, in your life, James is saying. If you believe that, if you've placed your faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus did, it should make a change in you. And so James says there are tests of faith. And the reality, the genuineness, the authenticity of what you say you believe is tested against a number of things. It's tested in its reaction to trials. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Consider it pure joys, my, joy, my brothers, when, not if, you fall into trials of various kinds. Here's why, verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith. Chapter 1, verse 3. Your faith, the reality of what you believe, is being tested by what you endure. And it is a checkup, as it were, for you and me as to whether or not we have slipped in what we claim to believe when we go through those trials, as to how we react to them. And then beginning in verse 16 of chapter 1, James, who wrote this, says here's a second test of the reality of what we claim to believe. It is our response to the Word of God. 
And so beginning in verse 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 27, it's all about our response to the word of God we saw last week. And our response should be, James says, that we are quick to hear the word of God, eager, ready to hear what God has to say and ready to put it into practice. And so James says in verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only. So not people who come on Sunday, open the book. Thank you all, many of you, almost all of you, if not all of you, have the book open. But we don't just open the book and hear it. We come with an intention to actually put it into practice. We are eager to hear it. We are ready to hear it. We're prepared to hear it. We want to hear it. We desire to hear it. And then we want to do what it says, says James. And if we are not those kind of people, then we can profess that we believe that we have faith. But the reality is called into question by our failure to obey what the word of God says. Now in chapter 2, here's a third test of the reality of what we claim to believe. And it's the test of partiality. It's the test of whether or not we are willing to come out of our collective comfort zone and to be involved in the life of someone else who is not like us, who is different from us. And so James tells us in chapter 2, look with me if you will. James chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now notice he's reminding at the beginning of chapter 2, James is, of what he started out with in chapter 1, that this is a test of faith. This is a test of what you believe. Believe, faith, same word. So back up in chapter 1, it's in verse 3, it's the testing of your faith. It's the testing of what you believe. And now in chapter 2 and verse 1, your faith is being tested. Your belief is being tested. He says, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as those who claim to have faith in him, as those who claim to believe who he is and what he did. Now, if that describes you, a believer in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, someone who says, I believe what the Bible says regarding who Jesus is and what he did, this is addressed directly to you and to me. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show partiality. Do not show favoritism is the word the NIV has. Now, some of you have a King James. And I've got my resident King James person over here. And I was hassling Carolyn about that. And I said, you know, in uh, verse 21, it says uh, superfluity of naughtiness. I said, do you have any earthly idea what that means? Because I don't. And here was Carolyn's response. I skipped that. So all in favor of buying an NIV for, for Carolyn. Thank you for being a good sport, Carolyn. But in verse 1 in the King James, it says, do not be a respecter of persons, right? A respecter of persons, one who shows favoritism, 
one person over another. One who shows partiality to one person over another is the idea. Now, what's it, what's it mean? Well, first, chapter 2 and verse 1 is connected with the end of chapter, chapter 1. You all remember that when your Bible was originally written, there were no chapters in it. And there were no verses in it. So James did not write his letter to these early believers with a chapter 1 and a chapter 2. We put that in later so that we could find things. So that we could say, turn to this portion of Scripture. It's just a way of indexing things. But the chapters and the verse markings were not there. And so, chapter 2 is a continuation of the end of chapter 1. And notice the end of chapter 1. Verse 27. That pure religion that God our Father accepts is this. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the kind of religious practice that is acceptable to God. It's religious practice that shows itself in care for those who are in circumstances other than yours. Widows and orphans. In their distress, in their affliction, being willing to care for this class of people. And then chapter 2 says, as believers, as people who claim to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus, do not show favoritism. Now, why does chapter 1, verse 27, pick out widows and orphans? Widows and the fatherless. Here's why. Because if you just do a cursory reading through the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, you will find that that's a category of people that repeatedly, our God says, need to be given special attention. Now, the fatherless and widows should be given special attention in our day, but particularly so in that day. And you know why? Because it was a heavily patriarchal society. That is, if you didn't have a man around, you were in big trouble. There was no welfare system that run by the state. There was no, there was no, uh, there was no safety net, as it were, that we become accustomed to, a social security system. And so these folks were particularly vulnerable because it was the men who did the work. It was the men who brought home the bacon. It was a man's world. It was a patriarchal society. And if your husband died... What would become of you as a widow was very much in doubt. Now, God had some, some regulations, some laws about the nearest of kin now is obligated to marry that widow in order for her to be taken care of. But notice, she had to be, she had to be married to a man in order to be taken care of. If, the, if the, the husband died, if he had children, now they are fatherless. They are orphans. And just now as their mother is going to be in extreme difficulty and her future is in doubt, now these children's future is going to be in doubt as well. And God says, the kind of heart that I have is a heart that goes out to those who are in difficult circumstances. And he often picked out the widows and the fatherless. And now in your New Testament, James chapter 1, God says, this is the kind of religious practice that's acceptable in my eyes. It's religious practices that looks to those that are in difficulty 
and seeks to help them in their affliction, in their distress. And it picks out that very category used in the Old Testament. Widows and the fatherless. And then you come to chapter 2. Do not show favoritism. Because if I'm going to express the heart of the God in whom I claim to believe, in the way I treat other people, then it is going to mean that I am going to have to, I must, remove external barriers from my care and relationship with those people. I have to remove those obstacles that would keep me from caring as God desires for those people. So I look at somebody who's less fortunate, who's in difficult circumstances, and I can say, well, you need to get a job. You need to work harder and take an uncaring attitude. And God says there are people in difficulty, sometimes through no fault of their own, and my heart is that I reach out to them, that I help them, and the, those who believe in me do the same kind of thing. Don't show favoritism. But it's not just people who are in economic distress, but rather it's people who are different from us in other respects as well. The word don't show favorite the word favoritism in verse one. Literally, here's what it means in Greek. It means to receive a face. I'll explain. But the word that's translated favoritism means this, to receive a face. Well, how does that come out as favoritism? To receive a face. Anybody, as you think about it, anybody know? It's to look at, it's to look at the externals. It's to look at someone externally and to size him or her up as to whether or not you are going to treat them with the heart that God desires that you express in their life. And God says, do not then receive, accept, help someone according to the externals, according to the face, according to the outside. Why? Because you claim to believe in me. And if you really believe in me, this is my heart, says the Lord. This is the way I treat people. You don't need to turn there, but you may jot down Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. Romans 2.11. Where the Bible tells us directly, God does not show favoritism. Same word. God does not do this. Romans 2.11. Or Ephesians 6.9. Or Colossians 3.25. Romans 2.11, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 3.25. God does not show favoritism. And those who claim to be followers of the true and living God then must not be people who invest themselves in others based upon the externals of that one person's circumstance. One such circumstance is widow, fatherless. But these particular people to whom James was writing had a whole other category of folks. 
that they weren't terribly keen on helping, being involved with. You know who it was? Gentiles. You see, who, who were these people to whom, James, to whom James was writing? Well, remember in chapter 1 and verse 1 who he says he's writing to. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, here's who I'm writing to. The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes. Who, who, is, he, who is he discussing when he talks about the 12 tribes? Well, in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says that you have faith. In the Lord, that you believe in the Lord. Your faith is being tested. And then in chapter 2, in verse 1, as we just read, he calls them my brothers. As believers in the Lord, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So whoever these people are, the 12 tribes scattered, these are believers in Jesus. They are Christians. But the reason he calls them the 12 tribes is because they're Jewish Christians. They are people of Jewish heritage who have come to Jesus. And James is writing to them now about demonstrating the reality of their faith. And one of the struggles, if you were a Jewish Christian in the early church, that you would have would be to accept people who were not what? And you can see why you would have that struggle, can't you? Remember the first part of your Bible. Remember the Old Testament. God's primary dealing was, was with a particular race of people. Abraham's descendants, the Jews, and a particular nation of people, Israel. And now you've come to the New Testament. And Jesus has come and he has died for the sins of mankind. And he has a message that bids people from every tongue and every nation to come to him. And he sends his followers out with a mission that is to go to how many nations? Jesus says, preach the gospel to how many? All nations. And you're a Jewish person at that time. And you say, well, this is different. I mean, the truth of the matter is, in the temple in the Old Testament, there was actually a section called the outer court. That was as far as the Gentiles could go. We're God's chosen people. What are we going to do with these guys? And so James says, I need to make it very clear to you that the heart of the God that you say you believe in is a heart that reaches to all people, regardless of externals, including race. And if you are going to be genuine followers of mine, that must be demonstrated by the way you interact with people of all races, of all external circumstances, do not show favoritism. Now, James has that background. James is Jewish, as were all the apostles. He knows these brothers of his have that background, and so he writes to that issue. And James had had some experience with this in another book in your Bible. James, who wrote this book, is mentioned in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And some of you will remember what Acts chapter 15 was about. 
Acts chapter 15 records a meeting. A meeting convened by the apostles in Jerusalem to which the churches and representatives from the churches were invited to come to discuss a big problem that they had. You know what the problem was? What are we going to require Gentiles to do in order to become part of the church? That was the issue in Acts chapter 15. Big meeting about that. And guess who the guy is that presided over that meeting? None other than James. James knows all about this. James is the head man, as a matter of fact, in Jerusalem. Jewish headquarters, right? And he's had this meeting about how we're to receive Gentile brothers and sisters into the church on equal footing. And now he's writing to Jewish brothers and sisters who have come to Jesus, and he is saying, you do not show favoritism. You do not receive a face. You do not deal with someone based upon externals like race. Everybody good with that? So, how racist are you? And it's not an out-of-place question, friends. There have been times in my Christian walk where I've cringed at what I've heard from professing believers. And I've heard thoughts uttered, statements made, that belie a view of other people based upon things like race that are not Christian. They're not consistent with the faith we profess. They are not consistent with the God that we say we follow. If you harbor those kind of thoughts in your heart, if you have uttered those kind of statements about others made in the image of God, then I want to implore you as James implored his brothers and sisters, I want to implore you, as brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, if you're going to be like Jesus, if you're going to live a life consistent with who Jesus is, you cannot harbor racial thoughts or utter racial statements. You cannot. It is a sin against Almighty God. You say, well, you know, I, no, I don't. I don't make those kind of statements. I think it, but I don't say it. Well, God knows what you think. So why is the city of Detroit in such a big, fat mess? I mean, I live in Flat Rock, you know. We got our problems, but compared to Detroit, we're, we're in pretty good shape. We'd all agree the city of Detroit is in a big fat mess. How come? Is it because of those black people? I'm here to tell you that there are a lot of people who think that. And if you think that, it's racist. The truth is, Flat Rock can go to hell in a handbasket. It can be run by white people, 
all day long. And many cities have, and many governments have. It is not about race. And it's not because those people don't know how to behave. Because of the color of skin. If you harbor those thoughts, if you say that kind of thing, you are violating what Almighty God says. Do not receive a face. Do not show favoritism. And it starts with the way we think, issues forth in the way we talk, and in the way we behave. Now, lest you think I'm making this up, that this is what James, one of the things that James was addressing, in verse 3, he starts to give an illustration. Suppose a man, verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 2, suppose a man comes into, and then notice this, your meeting, and then describes his external appearance. The phrase, your meeting, is the word synagogue. Suppose someone comes into your synagogue. These guys were apparently referring to their meeting place from time to time still as a synagogue. Suppose someone comes into your synagogue, you Jewish brothers and sisters now in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are still having a tough time making the transition to all races of people. And so James is saying, you've got this particular problem. I know all about it. I have Jewish, I'm Jewish as well, says James. We've dealt with this in Acts chapter 15. We had to have a council about it. And so I have to give you this very urgent message. You do not show favoritism including on race. Now, what's the background to God's requirement that we not show racial partiality, favoritism, or any other kind of external partiality? What is it? Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. So, who are these people that don't look like you and me? Before God, who are they? Do you know the Bible teaches that they are my relatives? If you really believe the Bible, you're related. You are related. We are related to everybody else. Humanity, in general, is completely related, right? I mean, where did we come from? Who are your parents? Well, in my case, Azzy and Adi. That's their names. You've heard me say before that they didn't even have to date. They just knew it was meant to be by virtue of their names. I'm Azzy, I'm Adi. We must be meant to be together. And then, you know, my mom's dad and mom, and on it goes through our ancestry. But ultimately, when you biblically, you come back to two, two parents. For every person here and every person who has existed. Humanity is completely related according to the Bible. Completely. And the differences are external. There are, to be sure, external differences. And what God is saying is you don't receive a face. You don't deal with people on that basis. You're part of the same human family. 
And in the church, you're part of the same spiritual family. Now, how does Acts 17 fit into that? Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You see that opening statement in verse 26? From one man... He made every nation of men. That's what your Bible teaches about where those people came from. Those people came from the same place you did. Those people are made of the same stuff you are. Those people have the same problem you do in our sinful condition. Those people require precisely the same solution that you and I do. A relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God absolutely therefore forbids us from harboring racial attitudes and prejudices and speaking in racially sinful ways. To broaden it a bit, James is telling us that you've got to be willing to go outside of your comfort zone if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. It means you're going to be with and rub shoulders with and love and care for people who don't look like you. In this case, they're not Jewish. They're going to be Gentile. In our case, they're not white Caucasian. They're African-American. They're Arab. Whatever. And Christ calls us to love them all equally. And to be willing to come outside of our comfort zone. Now let me expand it beyond race a little bit. Beyond race, coming out of your comfort zone means, for some of us, I mean, we've got no hope of coming out of our racial comfort zone. We can't, we can't even come out of our comfort zone within our race. You all know what I mean? So somebody new comes to a fellowship that we have. Somebody brand new. What's the, how many of you are going to be the first person to go up and converse with that, with that individual? Now, you know what? We always get really high marks at our church on Sunday mornings by people who visit here. They're saying, that's one of the friendliest churches I've ever been in, and I love to hear that. That's a great thing, and I commend you all for that. Sunday morning, it tends to go pretty well. Then we have these other venues. We have backyard fellowships like we did this past Wednesday. We have video road rallies, and thankfully, our folks invite people to come. And guess what happens? Very few people talk to them. I do, not because I'm great. I've just trained myself to do this. That I'm looking for the person who's new. 
Whatever gathering we have, I'm looking for the person who's new. But the fact of the matter is, what most of us do is we look for the people we're comfortable with. And we don't give a thought to that other person. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that that's something that is true of Community Baptist Church. And I say that with all the commendation that is appropriate for what we do on Sundays and how we attempt to reach out to people. I know you can do it. And I believe you will do it, having been reminded today. But I'm telling you, we're not doing it. There are too many times where I've seen somebody new at an event we have all by his or herself or only with the person who brought them. And that ought not be. I'm asking you to resolve. Every time we get together, come out of your comfort zone. Go to the person you don't know. Make that person feel the love of Christ by the invitation and welcome that you extend to them. No matter who they are, no matter what they look like, every last person who brings themselves in whatever forum into the fellowship of this group of followers of Jesus is going to see demonstrated before him or her the love of the Jesus that we claim to believe in. Right? So I'm asking you to do that. And do not think we've got it settled, that we've got it together. We don't. We have those areas that we still need to work on. The truth is, we'll continue to need to work on them until our Lord returns. So there are external circumstances. Receiving a face. Looking to the outside. You care to jot down 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Here's what it says. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. It's people who tend to look on the outside and say, you look like a fine, upstanding person. You look like somebody I'd be comfortable with. You seem like a nice guy or gal. And I size you up before I have ever had a, a word of conversation with you. We do that. But God looks on the heart. Now, I have to tell you that I, I think Martin Luther King summarized that pretty well in his famous statement. That what we really should do is judge people based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Isn't that what he said? And in so saying, he was completely biblical in what he said, completely biblical. It's exactly what God teaches and exactly what we, we must practice. So they're external to the face, receiving of people. If they're in my comfort zone, and it applies to race, but it also applies to other things as well. What about wealth and social rank? Or popularity. And it's so easy for even Christians to be pulled into those methods of evaluating people. Just like the culture does. Let me rattle off a few of those and we'll wind up. Popularity. Dealing with people based on popularity. I mean, it starts with us when we're kids, right? 
We want to have the right shoes. We want to have the right toys so that we can be in with the right group, so that we can be popular. We want to hang around with those who are popular. And then those kids grow up to be parents who have kids, and they want their kids to be popular. And so if we're honest about it, some of you are struggling with that right now with your kids. Then My kids want to deal with others in their relationships based upon popularity. How can I tell them you can't do that if I don't demonstrate this no favoritism that God requires? Our churches fall into it. I tell you, sometimes I'm almost sickened. And how quickly we get somebody in front of a church or a gathering to speak because they're a celebrity who's come to Jesus. Okay? You're a celebrity. You came to Jesus. You know what that makes you? Just like everybody else who came to Jesus. It doesn't qualify you to now go on a speaking tour. It doesn't give you a spot to preach at our church because you're a celebrity. Truth of the matter is, I ain't into celebrity Christianity. More important, God's not into it. I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. And God says there, remember what you were when you were called. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were wise according to man's standards. Doesn't he say that? But you are all one in Jesus. What you have in common is not your popularity, not your celebrity, not your birth. It's your relationship with God through Jesus. That's what we have in common. Popularity is one where we judge people and then attach ourselves to them. Wealth is another. And James describes it. He talks about someone coming in shabby clothes. And another man who's coming with, he says, rings, literally rings on his finger. And in those days, people were encouraged to wear multiple rings. This guy is decked out. And he comes into the church and he has multiple rings on his finger. And he's decked out in fine clothing, James says. It's literally bright clothing. It's the kind of bright apparel, shiny apparel that wealthy Jewish folk would wear at that time. And he comes in decked out, and you immediately notice him when he walks in the room. Now, this is somebody you want to attach yourself to, they say. And James tells the story, you come here, you sit in the finest seat, the most prominent seat. And then another guy comes in shabby clothes. And he's dirty and he's unkempt. And if we deal with him at all, what most of us will do is just ignore him and hope he'll go away. But if we deal with him at all, he's going to have a place in the back, off to the side, somewhere away from the finer people. What are the various ways that we show favoritism? Race? Popularity? Wealth? Social rank? Academic achievement? And on it goes. And none of these are befitting followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, it's a convicting thing for me to look at this test of a genuine faith and to ask myself, 
Do I genuinely receive people just for who they are in the image of God, not receiving a face, not based upon externals like popularity or race or wealth or social rank or academic achievement? And I ask you all to ask yourself that same thing. And if you find yourself in your attitudes and in your words and in your actions failing that, refusing at times to come out of your comfort zone, then as we go before the Lord now, let's confess that to Him. And let's repent of that. And as believers, verse 1, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, let's be people who at all costs do not show favoritism. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, this is a convicting passage for me and for us as your people. It's convicting, Lord, because we fall woefully short. We're different. We have different backgrounds and different struggles, and so we fall woefully short in different areas and at different times. I know that. But, Lord, I know we all struggle. I know I struggle. And I thank you for this convicting look at your word to remind me of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and what he is like. And when I see the gap between his character and my behavior, Lord, I'm smitten to the heart. And I believe my brothers and sisters here are as well. But Lord, we thank you for that because it's the first step in change. To be convicted, to see what's wrong, to look into the mirror of the word of God as we saw last week from chapter 1. And we don't want to go away unchanged as the foolish man does, but rather... We want to make the changes necessitated by this look into the mirror of your word. And so I pray, Lord, that right now there are hearts that are crying out to you and confessing sin and committing to repentance going forward. And I pray as a result of this, Lord, that our assembly will be an assembly that pleases you in this issue of our relationships with other people. And help us, Lord, to be people who reach out to those, all of them, who you see fit to bring our way, every last one, whoever they are, wherever they've been, may this truly be a place that lives up to what we say. It's a place that's safe to be a sinner. And you can find grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ here. And not on Sunday, just on Sunday, but every time we meet together, help, us, help our hearts to gravitate toward those who need to be welcomed and to see that love expressed, embodied in your followers. Go with us this week, Lord, as we seek to put this teaching into practice. We pray it in the name of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.